Hello, this is Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Michael Welch. We come to you from our broadcast studio at CJUM in Winnipeg, and we welcome listeners tuning into our show online or from our affiliated campus and community radio stations across Canada. On today's show, we'll speak with the Calhoun-based researcher Jack Hicks about the Harper government's cuts to the National Aboriginal Health Organization and other Aboriginal health support initiatives and the impacts that they'll have on Aboriginal peoples. We'll hear high school teacher Ben Sichel make the case for free transit in Halifax. And Trevor Harrison, a Lethbridge-based researcher with the Parkland Institute, will help us dissect the Alberta provincial election race. But first, here are the alert headlines for the week of April 19th, 2012. A new campaign was launched this week that urges unions, environmentalists, and social activists to unite around a common theme to stop Harper. Building on the success of the Occupy movement, the campaign to build one big campaign suggests formal and grassroots organizations, workers, activists, and public interest groups organize around the growing income disparity in Canada. This issue, they believe, could be the one to bring down the Harper government in the 2015 election. While the campaign's success is based on the mutual cooperation of a diverse group of organizers and activists, the one big campaign would be a non-binding cooperative process, not a new formal organization. The campaign is currently reaching out via Facebook. The Conservatives' ongoing attack on environmental groups has prompted David Suzuki to leave the board of his foundation to save the organization from being targeted for his own personal opinions and actions. Every time I shot off my mouth, the foundation got blamed for my remarks as an individual and I thought, I can't stand being a liability. Dr. Suzuki said. Last month's federal budget saw $8 million in new spending to increase Canada Revenue Agency's education and oversight mandate to investigate radical and foreign-funded charities, which have become code names for groups that oppose tar sands development in Canada. A program that helps reintegrate prisoners serving life sentences into society is the latest target of the Conservatives' attempt to dismantle the Canadian justice system. Lifeline hires and trains individuals on parole to mentor current prisoners serving life sentences or those recently on parole, supporting and providing guidance so they don't reoffend. The program costs about $2 million a year and is the latest cut in this year's federal budget, but the cut seems to be because this type of rehabilitative program does not fit within the rubric of the Conservatives' tough-on-crime approach. Lifeline was created to respond to the growing number of prisoners serving life sentences when Canada removed capital punishment from the Criminal Code in 1976. New research reveals that in 2011, the Canada Pension Plan invested about $1.5 billion in military, police, and prisoners for Israel. Through direct investment or by investing in venture capital funds, the CPP owned about $1.5 billion worth of shares in 64 corporations that supply Israel with military, police, surveillance, or prison products or services. These companies directly profit from links to Israel's occupation of Palestine and suppression of Palestinian peoples. 
the investments in 2011 have made about 16 million CPP contributors and beneficiaries complicit in supporting Israeli apartheid. The research was conducted by the Coalition to End the Arms Trade. The U.S. refused a plea from the Pakistani government to end drone attacks in the country. In exchange for the reopening of NATO supply lines through the country, the Pakistani government demanded that in addition to ending the drone attacks, the U.S. also end all overt or covert operations within Pakistan. The demands were part of a new set of guidelines unanimously approved in Pakistan's parliament that set a new direction for U.S.-Pakistan relations. The U.S. also refused Pakistan's 2008 demand to end drone strikes. The current U.S. government has launched six times more drone strikes in Pakistan alone than the Bush administration did throughout their entire tenure. The World Bank named the U.S.-nominated Jim Yong Kim as its new president and renewed criticism of Western influence within the organization. Before the formal announcement, Nigerian candidate Gozi Onkonjo Iwilia slammed the democratic process, saying, quote, you know, this thing is not really decided on merit, unquote. While the U.S., Europe, Japan, and Canada all supported Kim, which gave him a majority of votes, all other candidates stood little chance from the beginning. Since the founding of the World Bank at Bretton Woods, there has never been a non-American president. Kim is currently the president of Dartmouth College and co-founder of Partners in Health. Those have been your alert headlines for this week. And now for a look around the left for the week of April 19th, 2012. Public dissent is an essential and an integral pillar of a healthy and functioning democracy. What is the status of dissent in Canada? Is it alive and well? On April 21st, from 3 p.m. to 4.30 p.m., at the Ottawa Public Library, Rick Salutin, award-winning Toronto Star columnist and longtime dissident, will share his thoughts on dissent in Canada. He will also be available for signing copies of his latest book, Keeping the Public in Public Education, which will be officially launched in Montreal the day before. The book signing will begin at 2.15 p.m. prior to the lecture. Advanced tickets are $15 or $10 for students. Tickets at the door will be $20. Seating is limited, so get your ticket in advance at Octopus Books or by ordering online at prism-magazine.com. Attend the Ontario Day of Action Against Cuts on April 21st at 3 o'clock p.m. at Queen's Park in Toronto. At a time when Ontarians are in desperate need of economic recovery, the cuts recommended by banker Don Drummond will jeopardize every aspect of society. The Ontario Federation of Labour is working with community groups and organizations across Ontario to call on workers, retirees, students, and community members to join a mass rally to demand prosperity, not austerity. Help to mobilize your members, your families, and your communities to stop the cuts and put Ontario on the road to economic recovery. Our collective future depends on it. Tell Premier McGuinty to build Ontario, not tear it apart. For those in Winnipeg on April 22nd, take to the streets for the 9th Annual 7th Generation Walk for Mother Earth in support of grassroots Indigenous-led campaigns to preserve the Earth for future generations. There will be speakers at Central Park from 1 to 2 p.m., followed by a walk to the Forks via Memorial Park. 
The walk will arrive at the Udina Circle at the Forks at 3.30 p.m. for the annual spring water ceremony and a free picnic. This is a garbage-free family event. Bring drums, banners, cups, plates, and voices. The University is Ours, a conference on struggles within and beyond the neoliberal university, will take place April 27th to 29th, mostly at the University of Toronto, but with some additional sessions at Tartu College and Ryerson University. For more information on sessions, times, and speakers, check out the website at torontoedufactory.wordpress.com slash category slash program. For those in Caledonia, on April 28th at 2 o'clock p.m., come to a march and rally in support of Indigenous land rights. The Haudenosaunee of the Six Nations of the Grand River Territory invite you to join them and march for peace, respect, and friendship. The gathering will take place at Edinburgh Square, a Haudenosaunee park across from the Caledonia Fairgrounds in the township of Caledonia. The march will move down Argyle Street to the site known as Kanon Staton, where there will be a potluck, live music, games, activities, and discussions to which all are invited. For more information, email k-a-n-o-n-h-s-t-a-t-o-n at gmail.com or visit april28coalition.wordpress.com. That was Around the Left for this week. The announcement came late in the day, just before the Easter long weekend. The federal government would no longer be financing the National Aboriginal Health Organization, NAHO. While the government defends this choice, defenders of Aboriginal rights and justice are seeing it as yet another of the conservative government's slight against Canada's First Nations. One of these critics is Jack Hicks. He is an Iqaluit-based suicide researcher who was recently quoted in the media on this subject. So, welcome to Alert, Jack. Thanks. Nice to be here. Okay. Could you maybe give us, for the benefit of our listeners, could you give us some background on NAHO and and how it has served uh, the Indigenous population of Canada? NAHO was created to to fund research, to... um, popularize research results and to launch some evidence-based initiatives on things like suicide prevention, uh, tobacco cessation, a whole range of, of the health issues which are of particular importance to, to Aboriginal people across the country. Okay. And uh, you yourself, uh, you have, I understand you've benefited uh, directly from uh, NAHO in terms of the, the research that you've been doing. Well, thousands of people have, have, tens of thousands of people have downloaded their their research reports and uh, workshop reports, and um, so yeah, it's, it, their their website was a, a still is uh, a treasure house of, of information, and it's uh, considered best practice really around the world in terms of an Aboriginal controlled uh, research shop on on health issues. Okay, could you uh, talk, maybe give us uh, an, another uh, example, especially what distinguishes the, the situation, the health situation of our Aboriginal people from the rest of the population? Well, conditions vary widely among Aboriginal people, and, and I uh, am always 
careful to try and, and just make it very clear that um, you know, being, uh, being an aboriginal person is not in and of itself a health risk. Um, if you take suicide rates, for example, the suicide rates vary wi- widely uh, among the Inuit world um, and uh, also among First Nations. There are, there are First Nations that have extremely low suicide rates below the national average, some at the national average, some above the national average, and some well above the national average. So it's a complex matrix. Mm-hmm. But um, we have uh, well, suicide, diabetes, and tobacco are three issues that come to mind where there is a nationwide a much higher rate among Aboriginal peoples than among non-Aboriginal peoples. Mm-hmm. So um, in, in, when the Conservative government uh, dropped this bombshell, uh, what did you think of their... Uh, their defense of the decision. Well, it was ludicrous, but it's, it's also the first of several bombshells. We've now seen uh, a, a series of cuts, specifically on health, but also on other issues. Mm-hmm. So, um, the Native Women's Association of Canada last Friday, I think it was, learned that their funding for their health department is gone. Yesterday, Paututi, the National Inuit Women's Association, found out that the funding for their health department is gone. And today, the National Inuit Organization, ITK, learned that half the funding for its health uh, department is gone. Uh, in addition to cuts to other, the First Nations Statistical Institute is gone. Um, and there's a center on, on First Nations governance that is also gone. So it's it's not just Naho, it is a, which would be bad enough, it's a, an across-the-board attack on any organization which uh, the government f- has, governments have funded in the past, which uh, do um, data collection, data dissemination, and policy work, which could hi- highlight in a somewhat independent way the uh, unequal health status of Aboriginal people. Mm-hmm. That's uh, interesting. And, and programs to address that, because mm-hmm. some, some of the organizations ran public education campaigns and such. And a com- completely farcical comment by the Minister of Health today, just outrageous, on the cuts to the Inuit Women's Association Health Department. She said that nurses in the communities can do the kind of public education work that, that Paututi was doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the frontline nurses are already working their tails off, delivering basic health services. The idea that individual nurses in isolated communities could prepare anything as competent and well-researched as, as a national uh, policy shop located in the capital with access to experts is just ridiculous, completely ridiculous. Mm. At the very least, she needs to get a new writer because... I mean, it's bad enough that she makes the cuts, but then to say something that stupid, it's just throw salt in the wound. Mm. Uh, you've uh, you speculated recently in the media talking about the appointment of an Aboriginal as the, the health minister. Um, I don't know, would you care to maybe clarify those comments for us? Well, it, it, doesn't it feel better that the cuts to Aboriginal organizations are being made by an Aboriginal minister? It feels much better. I'm, I'm being facetious. Um, I don't, uh, I would not be at the tiniest bit surprised if Harper picked Aglukak as his health minister, um, specifically 
because, first of all, she's obedient. She signs what she's told to sign, um, which she has done. Um, if there was a word of protest, uh, and I doubt there was, uh, then not a word of it has leaked out. She does what she's told uh, by the PMO. I mean, she didn't wake up in the morning and say, hey, let's gut the National Inuit Women's Association Health Department. There's a good idea. She was told to, and she did it. The fact that it's an Aboriginal minister, the first Aboriginal, the first Aboriginal minister ever, I believe, certainly the first Aboriginal minister of health, um, I think uh, the Conservatives view that as useful to try and deflect criticism. Hmm. Now, the the overall agenda here, it's uh, I mean, it's it's more than just a, a cost-cutting measure. That this is, uh, as you see it, it's uh, it's essentially an attack on uh, Aboriginal. I mean, you know, the basically basic entitlements of uh, of Aboriginal peoples. What 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 purpose does this serve if 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 it goes beyond simply uh, cost-cutting measures? Well, I'm not sure. Well, first of all, on the cost-cutting measure level, this is peanuts. These cuts, in terms of the desired cuts to the federal budget, are peanuts. It is, and so I, I think we want to we want to look beyond the fact that these cuts are Aboriginal specific. The, the cuts of funding for community access programs for for internet for community libraries across across the country, which is not Aboriginal specific, it's also absolute peanuts. It's just mean. It's basically an attack on, on poor people. Um, so, again, the cuts to, the, to NAHO and, and the, the health departments, I don't view that as a specifically aboriginal thing in the sense that the Harper government is out to um, silence all critics to the greatest degree possible. I mean, if people are willing to mobilize and, and fund themselves, then the government can't uh, stop that, although we saw today with the, the release of the, the plan to take public interest groups out of the environmental assessment process, that if you're not directly impacted by a resource development project, then you will not be allowed to participate in federal environmental assessments. The cuts to the Aboriginal or Health Departments in Tanaho are part of a wider uh, agenda of, of trying to silence uh, critical voices that are critical of the government, mm. even mildly critical. I mean, these organizations were not radical. If you look at Naho's recent report on that looks at the health implications of serious overcrowding in, in most Inuit households, it's a competent report, to be sure. It is not a radical document in any sense. Um, and for that kind of document, not basically not to be allowable anymore, um, just speaks to the degree to which they, this government will, will not tolerate criticism. Mm. Well, uh, Jack, I, I think we have to get, let you go with that, but uh, I want to thank you very much for sharing those thoughts with us, and uh, we basically look forward to having you back on uh, sometime soon. Hopefully on a cheerier topic. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you very much. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Jack Hicks, who is a suicide researcher based in Iqaluit. If you live in the province of Alberta, Election Day is Monday, April 23rd. 
In a province which has become accustomed to one-party governance, the progressive conservatives have dominated the political landscape there for over 40 years, Monday's election is proving to be the most closely contested we've seen in generations. Who are the players? What do they stand for? And what's at stake for the rest of the country? To delve into these questions, Alert has reached Trevor Harrison. Trevor is a political sociologist at the University of Lethbridge and director of the Parkland Institute. So welcome to the show, uh, Trevor. Hello there, Michael. Okay, uh, now apparently we have uh, the the two dominant parties in this uh, race are the Progressive Conservatives and the Wild Rose Party. Uh, Could you just maybe help our listeners understand a little bit about the backgrounds of those two parties? Yeah, the uh, of course the uh, progressive conservatives have actually been in government here since uh, Peter Law he'd won back in 1971 and they've had a, a string of uh, uh, fairly uncontested majority governments over that period of time uh beginning with Peter Lougheed then uh, Premier Don Getty then of course Ralph Klein for a lot of years uh, after Klein stepped down, the uh, and Klein was kind of able to to hold together this big tent conservative party uh, through some some tough times in the uh, 90s and into the 2000s. Uh, and after that, he was replaced by a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Ed Stelmack. And uh, Stelmack was premier for about three four years here. Uh, one of the things that Selmac tried to do was to deal with the uh, the royalty situation and to increase in, a, in a, even minimally the royalty rates, and this uh, ended up causing a uh, a lot of consternation in uh, Calgary, of course, where the corporate offices are. And uh, so, uh, at that time, uh, because the royalty rates, the uh, threat of raising them. Uh, led to uh, some of the oil money and some of the big players beginning to shift their support away from the uh, the conservative government. So you're saying so, that the uh, the that there is a lot of consternation with the fact that the provincial government wanted more money, more revenue from uh, oil production. Yes, exactly. And uh, you know the the royalty rates here have been uh, notoriously quite low for a long period of time. So. But, you know, the oil companies have understandably got pretty used to that. So any kind of change to royalties, uh, you know, raises uh, red flags for them. Uh, as it turned out, there was actually a party in existence, the the Alliance Party, the Wild Rose Alliance Party, uh, had not done very much before uh, in uh, provincial elections. But uh, it became kind of a vehicle, uh, a right-wing vehicle for corporate money to begin to flow to. Uh, and at the same time, uh, uh, one of the people then ending up taking over the new leadership of the uh, Wild Rose Party about three years ago now was uh, Daniel Smith. And uh, Smith is a uh, kind of a veteran um, uh, media person. She was formerly uh, a, on a uh, board, uh, school board in Calgary uh, when she was uh, probably about 15 years ago or so. Uh, and she uh, interned actually with the uh, the Fraser Institute at one point. She's very much connected with the Calgary School of uh, Politics, uh, Tom Flanagan and and people of that sort. So uh, Smith became a leader of this party, and uh, again the uh, the oil money began to flow to it. So that's kind of basically what happened was a split within the Conservative Party, this big tent party that had always had kind of typical traditional Tory conservatives 
moral conservatives, the oil money, and uh, all of these factions began to split. So uh, part of the, the party went over to Wild Rose. Stelmack eventually uh, ends up losing his uh, premiership. He's, he's lost uh, legitimacy. And this past fall, they went into picking a new leader. The new leader, Alison Redford, represents, in the minds of uh, some of her opponents at least, uh, kind of the old red Tory faction. And so what's really emerged in this election is a fairly typical fight that we've actually seen at the federal level as well between the much more traditional red Tories, the progressive conservatives, and a faction that is much more closely aligned to the old reform party, uh, and it's kind of libertarian elements uh, that is represented in the Alliance Party. And so it, it's really a, an in-house uh, fight between two factions of uh, conservatism in this province. Mm. I think that uh, outside the province, uh, we have uh, a bit of a an image. Of, the, the province has an image in the minds of Canadians as, uh, well, probably best exemplified uh, by something a friend once told me, that being an environmentalist in Alberta is like being a Boy Scout in hell. I don't know if uh, you know how fair that is, but uh, could you maybe talk a little bit about, because uh, it seems like the main parties in contention are both avid supporters of the tar sands, for example. They are, and it, it shows one of the perils of actually an economy that is so tightly wedded to really a, a singular uh, aspect of the economy, and that is oil and gas production. The uh, the province has kept down, uh, we don't, of course don't have a uh, sales tax here, and they've kept down uh, tax rates otherwise, uh, and basically that's because they've been able to live off the avails of oil and gas production. But it also means that they constantly scramble to uh, to find ways of extracting more and more. Uh, frankly, also the uh, this ties into the pipeline uh, discussions about sending uh, the oil south on the uh, Keystone or the Northern Gateway pipeline because they want to extract as much as possible and get it out. This doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of Albertans who actually aren't concerned about environmental issues, but the threats to the economic well-being of the province are perceived as always kind of trumping that. And so both both these parties, in one fashion or another, uh, really want to uh, put the uh, you know foot to the pedal in terms of uh, extracting more and more. But it's because they've locked themselves into a particular form of political economy here. Okay. Now, could you tell us a little bit about, I mean, you already mentioned uh, big oil uh, directing uh, support toward uh, Wild Rose, but who are the basic constituencies of the, the two big parties? I mean, both in terms of financing and in terms of, uh, you know, just on the ground support. Yeah, one of the things, as long as the Conservatives were uh, firmly in control here, uh, they got huge amounts of money over the, uh, as long as you can remember here. Um, we don't really have any controls over uh, political financing, and so the amount of money that the Conservatives would get from the various corporations uh, easily dwarfs any other uh, financial support from other uh, sources over the years. As Wild Rose has become more of a contender, uh, they have received much more uh, money, and again, certainly from the uh, the corporate interest. 
but the conservatives, corporations like to hedge their bets, so they, the corporations also still give the conservatives a fair amount. Both parties clearly are uh, recipients of more money, uh, corporate money, than from the uh, than either the other parties uh, in the race uh, get. Um, the uh, the conservatives actually have broadened their appeal to some extent, uh, probably across the middle, and they're at this point in the election starting to eat away at some liberal supporters who are fearful of what a wild rose government would mean. So, uh, But at the same time, the hard right elements of the Conservative Party continue to bleed away to the wild rose party. And the wild rose is uh, really made up of, I would say, three different fairly distinct elements. One is kind of the uh, the corporate conservatives. Uh, a second one is the moral conservatives, the uh, the kind of uh, uh, Bible Belt element that has existed in Alberta. But there's also this uh, very uh, usually fringe element, but in Alberta, a growing element of kind of libertarian conservatism, the sort of thing that we see in uh, the Republican Party in the United States. And so there's these, these three kind of... Um, things that that underpin i think uh, the, the uh, wild rose support mm. now could you possibly explain uh, i mean you you've talked a little bit about the 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 impact of the oil sector but is there another explanation for why the liberals and the ndp seem to be so marginal in that con- in that province well, you know, uh, certainly tradition holds uh, uh, really well. The the NDP has a is strong in Edmonton, and it's uh, a, a very kind of traditional working class city in some ways. And uh, the Liberals have done well there as well. Um, liberalism, actually, a lot of people, as much as they hate the word here in Alberta, a lot of people actually are fairly liberal on a lot of uh, values. What it comes down to is the uh, the organizational structures, I think, to get people out. And uh, neither of those parties has ever reached such a, a kind of um, uh, a position in which they're viewed as legitimate contenders. You, know, you need to kind of get to a certain plateau where you can kind of launch from there. And they've never really made inroads uh beyond Edmonton and to some extent into uh, Calgary as well. Uh now that may change this election. I think the uh, NDP actually has a reasonable chance also of getting uh, perhaps even a seat uh if not a couple of seats down here in Lethbridge. But for the most part the other parties have the organizational structure and the uh the support base. It must be said too that the uh, the media in this uh, province uh Almost immediately in this election, as in others, uh, wrote off the other parties and, and viewed them as kind of tangential to the debate. And immediately, um, the narrative that emerged, the, the frame for the election, was that it's a competition between these two right-wing parties. So the media does actually play a role in uh, shaping the, uh, the way people perceive politics here. Okay, uh, Trevor, uh, just one last point. Uh, should uh, the Wild Rose Party uh, emerge triumphant uh, Monday night, uh, what what should uh, should the rest of the country be concerned? What should the rest of the country expect uh, should they uh, come to power? Well, I, I think a Wild Rose government should be of concern to the rest of the country, particularly in the context of the fact that the Wild Rose Party receives enormous uh, moral support, at least, from the Harper government in Ottawa. 
The Harper government is uh, wedded to the notion of decentralizing, of really cutting back on what the federal government does uh, and giving those powers to the province. Wild Rose is very much in favor of that, and Wild Rose's uh, approach to various things, uh, for example, um, uh, more privatization in health care, uh, presumably opening it up to uh, corporations from outside uh, the country, uh, having kind of voucher systems for post-secondary education, uh, you know, really kind of almost a privatization of the uh, the uh, public institutions in that fashion. Uh, and there's also a, uh, a kind of uh, isolationist, if not separatist, element to Wild Rose. Uh, for example, some of the things they want to do is uh, perhaps bring in their own provincial police force, uh, get out of the Canada Pension Plan. All of these things are really uh, harbingers of a, uh, a severe fragmentation of the country into you know, perhaps 10 different fiefdoms. And uh, we're, we're, this is where decentralization, I think, is uh, is perhaps leading us. But as I said, it's also in, uh, in lockstep with uh, much of the approach of the federal government at this point. Well, it sounds like a, a very interesting uh, development, and we'll be watching very closely to see uh, what transpires election night. Uh, I'd like to thank you for sharing your thoughts with us, Trevor. Well, much, uh, much appreciate the opportunity. Thank you, Michael. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Trevor Harrison, a political sociologist at the University of Lethbridge and director of the Parkland Institute. Joining us now from Halifax is Ben Seashell. He teaches high school in Halifax, and he's recently been arguing for a zero transit fare policy for the city of Halifax. Alert has caught up with him from his home uh, in Halifax. So thanks for joining us, Ben. Thank you. Okay, so could you first of all tell us uh, about this campaign to to get free public transit? Uh, Maybe what are some of the the basic principles uh, that are animating your argument? Sure. Well, before I go there, I should say a couple things. First of all, I'm not a, an expert by any means. I'm not an urban planner. I'm, I'm a, a school teacher, and uh, I'm, I'm also not really leading a campaign. I, I have to say I'm just a freelance journalist in my spare time. Um, but when you start to do a little bit of research on this topic, it just sort of it, it starts to make sense. Um, so zero fare public transit is an idea that's uh, that's been out there for a while. And uh, the basic idea is that uh, you want to get more people riding public transit. And if you reduce fares, you are reducing a barrier to getting on the bus. It's as simple as that, and you can increase ridership. Why should people who don't use public transit, uh, why should they be forced to subsidize uh, something that they don't use? Yeah, so, um, well, uh, the, the, the basic argument here is that having more people riding buses really does benefit everybody in the long run. Um, if you are getting people out of their cars and more people onto buses, you're reducing congestion and traffic on the road. You're uh, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and other other pollution. You know, and you could go on with things like like road rage. You're uh, you're saving wear and tear on the road, which saves uh, saves us money in the long run on roads and infrastructure, uh, cuts down on traffic accidents and the like. So, um, when people start talking about well, who's going to pay for this? Uh, people have to realize most of the time. First of all, transit is, uh, is, is not 
paid for by the fares that go into the fare box. Transit is paid for, in, in, here in Halifax, it's about two-thirds uh, by uh, general tax revenue, and the, the fares only pay about uh, a third of the cost of running the buses. So we're already, you know, subsidizing transit to a, a good degree. Now, for people who say, well, I don't ride the bus, or why should we pay more to have those buses, we've got to realize that we're, uh, we're, we're subsidizing car travel very heavily every day, much more than we are subsidizing public transit. And we're subsidizing in in the form of uh, road infrastructure, uh, bridges, um, uh, parking, tax breaks, and subsidies for for oil companies and for car companies and businesses that use vehicles. I mean, car travel is subsidized massively. And so, if we really wanted to politically, we could divert some of those funds to uh, to pay for for free buses for people. Mm. So, uh, it, would you? Uh, could you argue that uh, by withdrawing those uh, subsidies altogether and pouring it into public transit, you'd be coming out ahead? Well, I think so. I mean, the economic argument is, is one that uh, has to be addressed, of course, as, as that's what uh, people think. And, and really, you know, people say, well, riding the bus isn't really free. Well, no, of course it's not. There's, there's a cost associated with it. But people have to realize that riding your car, stepping into your car, is not free either, neither for the driver nor for uh, the public, who is is eventually subsidizing things. Okay. Yeah. Well, could you t- say from your research, uh, for example, I you you argue that uh, by elimin one of the ways of eliminating the barriers to using public transit is having to pay less in terms of fare. Do you have any studies to sort of back up that uh, you know, the less people have to pay, the more ridership goes up? Sure, yeah. Um, there is one major study that was done about 10 years ago by the U.S. Department of Transportation on uh, some zero-fare experiments that they had in the 70s and 80s in the U.S. and in different sized cities. And what they found was that ridership does go up about 50% uh, when you remove the fares altogether. There's actually a formula for how much if you, if you decrease the fare by a certain amount, uh, the ridership goes down. Or, sorry, if you decrease the fare, the ridership goes up. And if you increase fares, ridership goes uh, goes down. So uh, removing the fare altogether, they found it increases it by about 50%. Now, um, the question is, are those people who are riding the bus more, are those people who are coming out of their cars, for example, is that actually reducing traffic on the road? And what, that, what we found is that, in essence, uh, uh, removing the fares on its own is not going to solve, uh, you know, traffic congestion problems completely. Uh, if tr- public transit in your city is inconvenient, if it's slow, um, people are still going to, to drive. Uh, removing fares is not the uh, the panacea. It's not the, the one thing that is going to uh, make more people ride the bus. That being said, um, it does give, uh, for example, low-income people more options to uh, to ride. And uh, and it is a barrier that... Uh, that um, that uh, sorry um, does help more people get on the bus in general. Part of that is because of uh, it's not because of the the actual cost, but sort of the psychological cost. Uh, we had free buses here in Halifax for two weeks following a, tr- a recent transit strike, and uh, it's just really nice to be able to get on the bus, not have to fiddle for change in your pockets, worry about whether you have a ticket, uh, you know, wait for the ten people in line at the bus stop in front of you to get on the bus and and find all the change in their pockets. So it's really uh, it's really good in a lot of uh, senses. But on its own, it's not enough. We need better bus service. We need faster and more efficient bus service. 
Okay. Uh, ben, do you know of any other communities that have uh, succeeded in achieving uh, free transit or, or is at least well on their way to getting free transit? I do, yeah. And uh, one, one notable example is uh, in, in Belgium. It's a city called Hasselt, which is actually quite comparable to Halifax in terms of its population. Uh, it's got a core city of about uh, 70,000 and then suburbs of about 300,000 people. And they went to a completely free uh, transit system about 15 years ago. And uh, their ridership has increased about uh, 13-fold since they did that 15 years ago. Um, in other cities uh, around the world, there are also a lot of sort of smaller and mid-sized cities around the world who have free, uh, free transit. And in somewhat larger cities, um, they have sort of uh, half measures. If I say it like that, it sounds negative. But uh, in Canada, one of the biggest examples we have is Calgary, where in the downtown zone, you don't pay to get on the free uh, public transit there. Uh, Portland and Seattle as well uh, apparently have large free transit zones in their downtowns. And so measures like that are good as well. Um, cities don't have to completely cut out fares altogether in the whole system right away. Um, you can have a, a free transit zone, and, and that's up to urban planners to figure out what would be the most sensible approach, uh, especially in the short term. Ben, in your experience, what is the biggest hurdle faced by activists to try to get a, a public campaign going for free public transit? Well, um, part of it is the economic argument, like you asked me before. People have a bit of a gut reaction to, uh, to another thing that my tax dollars are going to pay for, you know. And, and uh, when you get into your car, there's this perception that that's free, that that doesn't cost you anything. When, of course, really it costs you much more than it does for you to take a bus. It costs the city, it costs uh, the, 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 uh, the public much more for you to take a car than it does for you to take a bus. Um, Another argument is that, you know, it's, it's inertia. We're just sort of used to the idea of you know, it's something that you have a, a user fee for and to, to take the, the bus. And lastly, I think that uh, people who say that, well, this isn't going to solve the problem all by itself, frankly, they're right. Free, free buses are, are one thing that uh, would help ridership increase, but they're not the only thing. Like I say, we need more frequent, uh, faster, more efficient and effective bus service in order to uh, get more people out of their cars and onto their uh, onto buses and ferries. Well, Ben Seashell, this sounds like a, a fascinating endeavor. Uh, we thank you for sharing those perspectives with us. And uh, Alert has been speaking with Ben Seashell, a high school teacher in Halifax, and he's been telling us about the campaign to get a zero transit fare policy for the city of Halifax. Hi, this is Mitch Benoit, and this is Music is the Weapon. And over the next couple of weeks, as May Day is approaching, we're going to be doing songs about labor music and labor history. And this week's show is strictly about Joe Hill. Joe Hill was a Swedish immigrant who ended up in the western United States and ran into the IWW, the industrial workers of the world, who of course were the Wallowies and who of course organized everything they could possibly organize and never once signed a contract with a boss. They made it illegal for Wobbly speakers to get up on street corners. They never made it illegal for somebody to get up and sing a song, and Joe Hill was the guy who rose from that group of people to be the most accurate and brilliant songwriter. So here's Joe Jinks to tell the story of Joe Hill. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never 
died, says he. I never died, says he. Salt Lake Joe, I says to him, standing by my bed, they framed you on a murder charge, says Joe, but I ain't dead, says Joe, but I ain't dead. Bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I did not die, says Joe. I did not die. as life smiling with his eyes says Joe what they could never kill went on to organize went on to organize Joe Hill ain't dead he says to me Hill ain't never die Where workers strike and organize Joe Hill is by their side Joe Hill is by their side From San Diego up to Maine Every Stand up for their rights It's there you'll find Joe Hill It's there you'll find Joe Hill I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he Never died, says he Joe Jenks singing Joe Glazer's classic song, Joe Hill. Joe Hill, of course, was a prodigious writer and his body of work was enormous. So we're going to play three of his best songs. To start, here's a man called Peter playing Casey Jones. The work is on the SB line for strikes and out of call. 
Casey Jones, the engineer, he wouldn't strike at all. His boiler, it was leaking, and the drivers on the bum, and the engines and the bearing, they were all out of plumb. Casey Jones kept his junk pile running. Casey Jones was doing double time. Casey Jones got a wooden medal for being good and faithful on the SP line. Well, the worker said to Casey, won't you help us win this strike? But Casey said, let me alone, you'd better take a hike. Well, Casey's wheezy engine ran right off the wheezy track, and Casey hit the river with an awful smack. Casey Jones hit the river bottom. Casey Jones broke his bloomin' spine. Casey Jones became an Angelino. He took a trip to heaven on the SP line. Casey got to heaven, way up to that pearly gate. He said, I'm Casey Jones, the guy that pulled the SP freight. You're just the man, said Peter, our musicians are on strike. You can get a job of scabbing anytime you like. Casey Jones got a job in heaven. Casey Jones was doing mighty fine. Casey Jones went scabbing on the angels, just like he did to workers on the SP line. Well, the angels got together, they said it wasn't fair For Casey Jones to go around to scabbing everywhere The Angels Union number 23, they sure were there They promptly fired Casey down the golden stair Casey Jones, I went to hell a-flying Casey Jones, the devil said, oh fine Casey Jones, get busy shoveling sulfur It's what you get for scabbing on the SP line
scared preachers come out every night I try to tell you what's wrong and what's right But when asked about something to eat uh, They will answer in voices so sweet You will eat, you will eat by and by In that glorious land in the sky Way up high, work and pray Live on hay you get by in the sky when you die, that's the lie. The starvation army they play, and they shout and they clap and they pray. Uh, when they got all your coins on the drum, uh, they will tell you when you're on the bomb. You will eat, you will eat by and by in that glorious land in the sky, way up high, working live on hay, you get by in the sky when you die, that's a lie. Holy rollers and jumpers come out, and they roll and they jump and they shout. I give your money to Jesus, they say, and you lead on that glorious day. You will eat, you will eat by and by. Side by side, we for freedom will fight. Uh, when this world and its wealth we have gained, back uh, to the grafters will sing this refrain. You and me, we fight and fight. When you learn how to cook and how to fry, I uh, chop some wood, do you good. Preacher and the Slave, sung by Utah Phillips, The Rebel Girl, sung by Hazel Dickens, and Casey Jones, sung by America's Tuning Fork, Mr. Peter Seeger. I always loved the songs by Joe Hill. I always thought they were really amazing things. And the most amazing thing I ever heard was Joe Hill's last will and testament. I'm going to read it for you right now. My will is easy to decide, for there is nothing to divide. My kin don't need a fuss and moan. Moss does not cling to a rolling stone. My body, oh, if I could choose, I would to ashes it reduce. And let the merry breezes blow, my dust to where some flowers grow. Perhaps some fading flower then would come to life and bloom again. This is my last and final will. Good luck to all of you. Joe Hill. Those first two lines, my will is easy to decide where there's nothing to divide. They always get me right where I live because so many of the people I know, that's exactly the reality that they face on a daily basis. What Joe Hill said back in 1915 is obviously still very, very relevant. To finish off the show, here is a song that Utah Phillips believes is Joe Hill's best song. There is power in a union. Chorus is, there is power, there is power in a band of working folks when we stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. I'll get you the chorus. There is power, there is power in a band of working folks when we stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial Will you? 
would you have freedom from wage slavery and come join the grand industrial band? How would you from misery and hunger be free? Come on, do you share land and there is power, there is power in a band working folks when we stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union brand. Oh, would you have mansions of gold in the sky and live in a shack that's away in the back? Oh, would you have wings up in heaven to fly? And start here with a rag on your back. But there is power, there is power in a man working folks when we stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. Oh, if you like sluggers to feed in your head, don't organize all union despise. If you want nothing before you are dead, shake hands with your boss and look wise. But there is power, there is power in a band working folks when we stand hand in hand. That's a power, that's a power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. So come all ye workers from every land. And come join the grand industrial band. But then we our share of this earth shall demand. Come on, do your share, lend a hand. There is power, there is power in a band working folks when we stand hand in hand. That's the power, that's the power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. That was you, Utah Phillips, the golden voice of the great Southwest, singing There is Power in the Union, a song by Joe Hill, which is what today's show was all about. I'm Mitch Panolik. This is Music is the Weapon, Solidarity. That's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear the show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select Alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. Technical producers are Michael Welch and Tommy Allen. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. With technical production by Andrew Valky. I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio has been a production of Canadian Dimension magazine.